0: The U.S. reacts on this occasion with massive force for two reasons. At first, at the logistics base in eastern Jordan, three soldiers of the U.S. Army Reserve were killed, among them two young women in their early 20s. And the Houthi attacks on the ships around Bab al Mandeb. endangered.
1: They... Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Douglas Mpuga, and here's what's coming up.
2: Okay, the situation still complicated. Till now, people are still fleeing, leaving sake coming in Goma since early morning. According to people I talked to, it was five. U.S.
1: U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Israel today to discuss a possible deal with Hamas. Uh, who would release hostages in exchange for an extended ceasefire. Hamas has already made a positive response to the proposal, which Qatar's Prime Minister, Mohammed bin Abdurrahman Al Thani and Blinken, discussed at a news conference in Qatar yesterday without providing details. At the White House, President Joe Biden was more cautious, saying only that there is some movement on the hostage situation. One expert told VOA there are lots of obstacles. Blinken is on his fifth Middle East trip since the war began October 7th when Hamas, a U.S.-designated terrorist group, staged an attack that killed 1,200 Israelis and took hundreds of others as hostages. Israeli attacks on Gaza have left more than 27,478 Palestinians dead, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. For an update, I have VOA State Department correspondent on the phone Uh, Hi, Cindy. Cindy, how are you? Good. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Let's start with an overview of Secretary Blinken's trip. Who has he been meeting?
3: Uh, yes. Well, as you said, Secretary Blinken has been in Israel. He has met with Prime Minister Netanyahu. We're hearing for a little over an hour. He's met with members of the Israeli War Cabinet, including the head of the Israeli Defense uh, Forces and the uh, Defense Minister. And as we speak right now, he is in the West Bank meeting with uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas.
1: And what has he been saying today about the efforts to create a ceasefire agreement?
3: Right. Well, we're not hearing too much leaking out now, but we know, as you say, uh, that on uh, Tuesday... Secretary Blinken didn't really characterize the, uh, the Hamas response to this hostage deal, but just to say that the U.S. is studying it intensely. And he did say that it is essential to get a deal and that uh, the U.S. very much wants it. So we're hearing uh, some reports now um, uh, uh, that uh, people have seen leaked versions of the Hamas response and they say that it's calling for uh three phases uh which would be a total of four and a half months and in the first phase some hostages would be released including uh women and and young boys and uh the, the there would be second another phase and it would include a massive humanitarian effort freedom of movement for people throughout Gaza, and this Hamas response we're hearing, I have not seen it yet myself, but we're hearing that um, all hostages would go free in the third phase, and then also uh, remains of those who have been killed would be exchanged, and that there would be they are asking for an agreement to end the war.
1: Now, given uh, this proposal for, that came from the U.S., Israel, Qatar, and Egypt, and uh, the, the alleged Hamas uh, counterproposal. Do you think the US can bring the two these parties to an agreement and to agree on a given uh, uh, ceasefire agreement?
3: That's an excellent question, and I think it, it, it is going to be tough, and we're probably um, not likely to be hearing something right away on that. Just to kind of give you an idea, uh, we're going to have, uh, set to have Secretary Blinken coming out and giving a press conference by himself, and then the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu giving a press conference earlier, uh, coming up shortly, by himself. So there's no joint press conference with the U.S. and Israel. And some Israeli media are reporting that the Hamas uh, counterproposal Uh, is a non-starter, and that the talks going on in Israel right now are based on whether to just uh, reject it outright or to enter into negotiations.
1: Thank you, Cindy.
3: My pleasure.
1: Yeah, that was Cindy Sain, State Department correspondent. Thank you. Uh, Now, the United States military and its allies in recent weeks have struck several times at the Houthi militia in Yemen, and American forces have struck at Iran-backed militants in Iraq and Syria. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the objective of U.S. strikes is to erode the capabilities of Iranian allied groups that are attacking U.S. forces and to discourage Houthi attacks on Red Sea shipping. He says the U.S. will continue to take action as needed. Iran, which supports the militia forces targeted by the U.S., called the attacks a violation of Syrian and Iraqi sovereignty and territorial integrity. Wolfgang Puzai, security and policy analyst at the, and a senior advisor at the Austrian Institute of European and Security Policy, discussed U.S. campaign and regional reactions with VOS senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi.
0: The U.S. reacts on this occasion with massive force for two reasons. At first, at the logistics base in eastern Jordan, three soldiers of the U.S. Army Reserve were killed, among them two young women in their early 20s. And the Houthi attacks on the ships around Bab al Mandeb endanger a vital American strategic interest, namely the freedom of shipping. So the number and the intensity of the strikes does not come as a surprise. Even the use of heavy long-range bombers, which is a, a rather rare, is a typical strong signal if American vital strategic interests are in danger. The U.S. wants to win back the respect of the various militias and terrorist groups and prevent or at least deter further attacks. Their message is, your attacks on shipping and on our soldiers will certainly not go unpunished. Did they hit anything? I would say yes, because usually high-value targets are monitored after they were selected in a targeting board by high-altitude drones or from the space. So I doubt that our Quds Brigade were able to get the main assets out of harm's way. I guess the strikes have caused some considerable damage. Syrian Foreign Minister Faisal mekdad said in a statement the U.S. attacks will seriously increase tensions in the region and the Iraqi parliament convened an urgent session to discuss the repercussions of the U.S. strikes and the presence of foreign forces on Iraqi soil. How would the attacks impact the so-called axis of resistance and talks about U.S. military presence in Iraq. Well, at first I would stress the attacks on the ships and the killing of the U.S. soldiers have already seriously increased tensions in the region. One might ask, what did they expect from the United States to accept the killing of their soldiers? The axis of resistance, the informal Iranian-led political and military coalition, cannot be surprised about the harsh U.S. response. On the other side, statements from Syria and Iraq are also not a surprise. This is not only about the territory of both countries, but this is with regard to Syria, that the Americans have attacked the Iran's Al-Quds brigades, and those are one of the most important allies of the regime in Damascus. On the other side, in Iraq, 55% of Iraq's population are Shia. Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani is a Shia, with close relations to Tehran. So, both sides cannot be surprised about what the other side did. I would say as a consequence of these events, a withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq is increasingly likely, especially the more influential the Shia majority becomes in Iraq. But I would say... I'm not sure that all the Sunnis in the Middle East are pleased with this. Iran, which supports the militia forces targeted by the U.S., called the attacks a violation of Syrian and Iraqi sovereignty and their territorial integrity, and the Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Nasser Kanani termed the U.S. attacks a serious strategic mistake. What do you make of that statement? The strikes on the U.S. bases on the, on the ships of Yemen have the purpose to force a in the U.S. policy on the Gaza war, which is from my point of view highly unlikely, especially in a year of elections. The key question is, how far will Tehran go to push the United States? A war with Iran is certainly not an aim of the Biden administration, especially not in a year of presidential elections, as this could seriously damage American national interests. On the other side, Biden cannot show weakness before the elections. Iran must be aware of this. And with regard to Iran, they also cannot really afford the war. Their center of gravity is the survival of the regime. They had quite a lot of problems with the extent of the protests about the headscarf over the last year. The economic situation is extremely difficult. They have just about 600 to 800 missiles with a range to Israel. This would not be enough to win a non-nuclear war with Israel. So one should ask, in a war with the United States, what might be Iran's war objective and would it be achievable? Would Iran attack American bases in the Emirates, in Qatar, and in Jordan? I would say Probably not. Why? This would stop the slow improvement of the relations between Iran and the GCC countries. And this would furthermore undermine and endanger the economy of Iran. So what will probably happen? I expect some more attacks on ships, some more attacks on American troops in the region. And further heavy American attacks will follow. But not on targets in Iran as long as no missiles and drones are launched from Iran itself.
1: That was Wolfgang Puzay, a senior advisor at the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy, speaking with VOS analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi. There has been new fighting in the town of Sake in eastern DRC, Reuters reports. A rocket landed near a university in the Diara Congo city of Goma today as thousands more civilians fled, a fresh advance by M23 rebels. No casualties were reported, but the violence threatens to isolate the strategic urban hub in the violence-ridden east of the country. For more on the situation, uh, earlier on, I reached reporter Jafar Alkatante in Goma. Hi, Jafar.
2: Okay, the situation still complicated. Till now, people are still fleeing, leaving sake coming in Goma since early morning. According to people I talked to, it was five thirty when M23 launched an attack on FRDC position. And as fighting was in the city of Sake, local of Sake decided to leave. And all the the before noon from that time to like 2 p.m. Goma time, IDPs were coming from Sake to Goma. All roads were really full of IDPs. People walked. 27 kilometers with their kids, with their babies, and some of them with just a mattress and some food, and others with nothing.
1: Do we know the number of casualties in that place, in the fighting?
2: At the moment, it's difficult to know because the government is not controlling 100% of sake and M23, uh, not two. Uh, But according to the local civil society, two... Explosion killed some people and injured lot of them. One rocket of M23 landed in a market, killed many people. And I saw many ambulances passing in the way from Sake to Goma, bringing wounded people in Goma Hospital. But at this moment, we can't know the real number or the record of the casualties.
1: So at this time, who is in control of Sake? Is it the M23 rebels or the government is trying to push them out?
2: Right now, there is like five minutes ago, uh, the FRDC, the armed forces of the GRC, just made a statement saying that they take back the control of Sake. But in the morning, rebels controlled it. But the situation is still uh, complicated. Uh, We can't say who controls Sake, except FRDC say they have the control of the city. And I must add also that two rockets from Sake landed in Goma, and FRDC said there was M23 rockets. One of them landed close to Goma University without touching or making any victims and another one it was in the market but as it was early morning there was no one in that market so the two rockets didn't produce any victims.
1: Uh, sake is not very far from goma it's very near how is
2: fishing in goma itself are the army forces in control uh, for sure sake is the last city before goma because there is only 25 kilometers between sake and goma and sake is for the FRDC, the last position uh, to protect GOMA. That's why he, people here in GOMA was also under a big panic, because if the M23 controls sake, that means the last point will be GOMA, and there will be a fighting in GOMA. And people here in Goma, especially neighborhoods of uh, Lac Ver and Mugunga, which are in the west of the city of Goma, close to uh, Virunga National Park, uh, people were afraid. And I saw even people in Goma uh, preparing themselves to leave in case Saki fell. For the first time, I saw uh, MONUSCO, FRDC, and SADEC soldiers working together in order to stop the. Uh, progress of m23 that
1: was reporter jafal katante in goma speaking with me from there meanwhile the united nations agencies are appealing for 4.1 billion dollars to provide urgent aid for more than 17 million civilians inside war-torn sudan and those who have fled neighboring countries lisa schlein reports for voa from geneva
4: The United Nations appeal got off to a poignant start with a video of Sudanese victims who recounted the terrible impact the war has had on their lives. Mena, a young Sudanese refugee in Egypt, said the war has robbed her and other children of their education. But how can we build the future in this situation? UN officials say Sudan's nearly 10-month-long conflict has fueled suffering of epic proportions. And yet, UN Emergency Relief Coordinator Martin Griffiths says the international community has largely forgotten the country amid high-profile crises in Gaza, Ukraine and elsewhere.
3: But I don't think there's anywhere quite so tragic um, in the world today as Sudan. Um, the, the The figures speak for themselves. There's 25 million people in Sudan who need assistance. Half of them are children. That's an astonishing figure.
4: He says the expansion of fighting in Sudan, including to Al Jazeera, the country's so-called breadbasket, has worsened the situation. Nearly 18 million people face acute hunger. Diseases, including cholera, measles and malaria, are spreading, and few health facilities are functioning. UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, says the conflict between the Sudanese armed forces and paramilitary rapid support force has created one of the world's largest displacement and protection crises.
0: If you calculate people displaced inside and outside, you reach easily eight, nine million people. This is massive. This is the scale of Ukraine, the scale of Syria. These are the three biggest dis- displacement crises in the world at the moment, and. This is the one that is least talked about.
4: The two officials who have jointly launched the Sudan and refugee response plans say the money requested will provide food and nutrition, shelter, clean water and education for children. They say it also will help fight the scourge of gender-based violence and care for the survivors. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva.
1: You are listening to Africa News tonight. I'm Douglas Simpuga in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Authorities in Somalia's capital Mogadishu are trying to determine who is responsible for a series of bombings that killed at least eight people and injured 19 others yesterday in the city's main Baraka, Bakara market. Business leaders in the market say the explosions targeted a chain of electronics shops and were caused by devices planted in the stores. A security officer, who did not want to be named because he is not allowed to speak to the media, told VOA Somali service that attacks are related to the installation of CCTV cameras by the businesses. Last year, Somalia's security agencies urged the businesses to install security cameras. Some of the store owners said they later received anonymous calls from people claiming to be from the Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab who warned them against the installations. Cameroon officials uh, and aid groups say about 3 million people on the northern border with Chad and Nigeria are going hungry as devastating migratory caterpillars, crickets, weaver birds, elephants, and lions damage thousands of hectares of farmland. To chase off invading creatures, farmers bang on drums and dishes as we hear from Moki Edwin Kinzika in Yaounde, Cameroon. Cameroon's Ministry
5: of Agriculture and Rural Development says several million caterpillars, crickets, and weaver birds from Cameroon, Chad, Niger, and Nigeria are damaging thousands of hectares of farmlands in the Central African state. Farmers and humanitarian associations report that groups of young people, especially women, gather every morning to beat drums, pots, and dishes to scare away the birds and insects. Cameroon State TV on Monday showed videos of women struggling to chase away the migratory birds and pleading for help from the government. Hamadu Yahya is a Cameroonian government agricultural technician in Kalfu District on Cameroon's northern border with Chad. He says in northern Cameroon this month, close to 3 million people lack enough food, especially table food grains. Hamadu says besides the birds, large animals are also destroying huge portions of farmland. Of Hamadou says for the first time in three years, a large number of elephants returned to parks in Cameroon's northern border with Chad and Nigeria, devastating several hundred hectares of farmland. He says this year's extremely long dry season is also drying up water resources in parks, pushing elephants to search for water and food in farms around the parks, which is destroying crops in front of helpless farmers. The Cameroon government also reports that lions have been straying out of their habitat to attack livestock. Hamadu said millet, which is the main source of livelihood for millions of people in northern Cameroon, Chad, Nigeria, and Niger, is being hit hardest by the invading birds and animals. The government of Cameroon says 3 million Cameroonians in the Central African state's northern border with Nigeria and Chad need food aid. Karbasu Daniel is president of Cameroon's Far North Regional Council, a decentralized structure created by the government to speed up local development. He says the birds, elephants, and lions are escaping harsh weather conditions in their habitats to find food and water around the Lake Chad Basin. Millet production went down because elephant insects destroyed crops. And now the prices of XJC on the market is very high. Farmers cannot afford them. Prices of fertilizers went up from sixteen seventy thousand a back of fifty kilo to forty two thousand more than double. Therefore, many farmers cannot afford those fertilizers. The prices for fertilizers are in Central African francs and forty two thousand francs equals about sixty nine US dollars. In twenty twenty three Cameroon, Chad, Nigeria and Niger reported that several million people in the Lake Chad Basin were threatened by severe hunger as floods and wildlife damaged farmland. Cameroon says it is giving free seeds and fertilizers to farmers to begin planting when the rains are expected to come in June. But the farmers say people are hungry now. Cameroon says it does not have the means to use helicopters and planes to fight the migratory caterpillars, crickets, riverbeds and elephants. It advises civilians to stop farming near elephant and lion habitats. Moki, Edwin Kinzuka, VOA News, Yaounde, Cameroon.
1: Mobile internet access was re today in Senegal's capital Dakar two days after authorities cut it off as the country grapples with its worst political crisis in decades. Access to mobile data was blocked early Monday with the telecommunications ministry citing the dissemination of hateful and subversive messages on social media. Lawmakers on the same day voted to delay this month's presidential poll until December 15th, extending the term of outgoing President Mark Sall. The French news agency, AFP, says the bill passed almost unanimously but only after security forces removed some opposition deputies who were not able to cast their votes. The vote and the conditions under which it was carried out caused widespread outcry and raised fears of street protests in Dakar. Mobile internet was also cut last June amid high tensions in the country. And that wraps up this edition of African News tonight. I'm Douglas Simpoga in Portland, Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of the entire African Newsnight crew, I thank you for choosing the Voice of America.